Matthew 5, verse 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word for us today. Thanks, Mary. Well, good morning, Redemption Church. It's good to be with you this morning. In 2021, Pew Research found out that about three quarters of Americans, 73%, believe in heaven. Barna Research looked into these statistics a little bit deeper and found that 54% of Americans believe that they will experience heaven when they die. 15% don't know what will happen to them. 13% say that there is no life after death. 8% think that they will be reincarnated. Another 8% believe that they will go through some kind of purification like purgatory before entering into heaven. And only 2% believe they will go to hell. The study also found that nearly half of adults, 48%, believe that the way to get to heaven is by being a generally good person. Even 52% of those who identified as Christians held to this sort of works-oriented, being good means of being accepted by God. So, we see from these statistics that still today, There are a majority of Americans who believe in heaven, and the most common idea of how to get there is by being a good person. I have a lot of questions when I think about these kinds of statistics. Maybe the biggest question for me is, what does it mean to be a good person? How do I know if I'm a good person, especially good enough to go to heaven? Who decides? What is the standard for being a good person? We've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount for the last couple of weeks, and I believe Jesus answers all of these questions in the sermon. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the Beatitudes, uh, where Jesus describes for us the kind of person that will be in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the first and the last Beatitude end by Jesus saying, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a literary device or a way of saying that from first to last, the Beatitudes describe the kind of person who belongs to the kingdom of heaven. Last week, Jesus ended with a warning about who will not be in the kingdom of heaven. This is a key verse for our passage today and I think for the rest of chapter 5. It's verse 20 of chapter 5. Jesus says, For I tell you, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we know that the scribes and Pharisees are very prominent figures in the, in the Gospels, in the book of Matthew. They were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, kind of like the pastors, priests, and seminary professors of our day. And Jesus is saying that those who follow their teachings and share their view of righteousness will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In the rest of chapters 5 and 6 of Matthew, as Jesus continues his sermon, he compares and contrasts the righteousness that will not be sufficient to enter heaven, that of the scribes and Pharisees, and he teaches us the kind of righteousness that is needed for heaven. As he does this, Jesus fills out for us the Beatitudes that he began the sermon with, and as we will see, he helps us understand their meaning. I think it's good to keep going back to the Beatitudes as you study this Sermon on the Mount, for their meaning becomes clearer and clearer as the sermon unfolds. So in our passage today, Jesus starts with the first of six contrasts between the inadequate righteousness of the religious leaders and the righteousness that he teaches is needed for heaven. Six times in the rest of chapter 5, Jesus will say something like, you have heard that it was said, and then he follows that up with, but I say to you. And Jesus is giving us here his standard of what it means to be a righteous or a good person. And as the Son of God, we believe this is God's standard. How are we, how, for how we're to decide whether someone is good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. As we learned last week, Jesus isn't giving us a new law, or he isn't abolishing the old law. He's fulfilling the law, which at least in the Sermon on the Mount means that Jesus is teaching what the original intent of the law and the prophets was meant to be. I think it's important to remember that Jesus and the religious leaders were using the same Old Testament law and prophets. They were reading the same words, reading the same teachings, but they had different understandings of it. And Jesus is claiming that their understanding is incorrect and prevents them and their followers from entering the kingdom of heaven. I think this is important to understand. In, in the world today, and always in the world, there's many different people who have many different ideas about what the Bible says, right? But it is, it is extremely important to get it right, especially the things that Jesus is teaching in this sermon. Heaven itself is at stake. And we believe it is Jesus and the Holy Spirit that he gives us that are essential to a right understanding of Scripture. So let's dive into our passage today. And our first point is that Jesus gives us the earthly standard in verse 21. This is the first of the six contrasts that we'll see through the end of chapter 5. And this was the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I'm calling it the earthly standard because I believe these religious, religious leaders taught a reading of Scripture that was compatible with human ability. And in fact, I think this is the basis of all human religions, apart from Christianity. It's very, Christianity is very different. That this, it's the, all human religions are based on human goodness or human ability or what we as humans do for God rather than what God does for us. And so the religious leaders of Jesus' day, like many religions, had developed a, a religious system 
in which it was possible for people to keep, at least in an external sense, this righteous standard and to think of themselves, therefore, as righteous or generally good people who would be good enough to be accepted by God. So this earthly standard is in verse 21, and Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's it. If you don't murder, you're righteous. Maybe you've heard someone say something like, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I haven't murdered anyone, right? In an average year, there are about 26,000 murders in the United States, which is a minuscule percent of the U.S. population of about 332 million. So by this earthly standard, almost all Americans are good or righteous people because so few of us are murderers. That was true in Jesus' day as well. And that leads us to Jesus' heavenly standard in verse 22. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, Jesus is not abolishing the law and the prophets here or the command not to murder. He is fulfilling them by exposing God's true intention behind these laws in the first place. God's desire is not that just that people don't murder one another, but that we don't hate one another or treat one another with anger and contempt. Now how many people are good and righteous according to this heavenly standard? Heaven will not be a place of angry people who despise one another. Rather, it will be filled with the poor in spirit, the humble, the merciful, the pure in heart, and the peacemakers. Let's look a little closer at this righteousness that Jesus is putting before us. The first thing to notice is that Jesus talks about being angry with your brother. This is interpersonal anger between people in relationship with one another that we're talking about. We're not talking about some kind of anger about injustice in the world, right? We're talking about anger that affects our personal relationships with one another. Our brothers, our sisters. The word brother <clears throat> occurs 38 times in the book of Matthew. And about half of the times, the word refers to physical blood brothers. Like Peter and Andrew were brothers. James and John were brothers. But in the other 18 or 19 times the word is used, the word brother, beginning here in this verse, is used by Jesus to describe something other than simply a physical blood relationship. It describes rather a, a spiritual relationship. The key verse to understanding this in the book of Matthew is Matthew 12, verses 48 to 50. We, in that passage, Jesus, actually physical blood mother and brothers are looking for him and they want to they meet him. And somebody tells Jesus this and then he replies with this. He says, but Jesus answered the one who was telling him and he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching his hand out toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus proclaims is also a spiritual family. 
in which God is the Father and the disciples of Jesus, the Son of God, become the brothers and sisters of Jesus, his family. And in this new family, Jesus is saying, anger and contempt for one another are not allowed. In this way, Jesus is forming a new heavenly family that is very different from the earthly family that we are all born into. From the beginning of this human earthly family, anger and contempt and murder have been a part of our family, right? Of our human family. This goes way back to the first two brothers, the first two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Go back to Genesis 4. We read about the story of these first two brothers. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. We see that anger here is a powerfully devastating emotion and sin that eventually led Cain to murder his brother. Notice that in this story, Abel didn't do anything to Cain. Cain's anger became irrational, and it destroyed his brother's life. It ultimately destroyed Cain's life as well. So in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, it's not enough not to murder. He's going deeper to the roots of murder in the heart, anger itself. And so friends, this morning, I think Jesus wants us to address the sin of heart anger in our relationships. Is there anger in your marriage toward your spouse? Do you appear to be righteous at church, but are lashing out in anger in the privacy of your own home? If you're a parent, is there anger toward your children? You've got to know that anger can destroy your relationship with your children. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We are called by God to discipline our children, but the discipline of the Lord does not involve our personal anger. We should never discipline our children in anger. I remember as a young father, when, when I first heard that, it was revolutionary to me. Changed the kind of father that I became. We should only discipline our children out of love and concern for them, having their best interests in mind, not our own selfish interests to control or manipulate them or vent our anger on our children. This is the challenge and art of parenting in the spirit of Jesus, for sure. As a church member, are you harboring anger towards a fellow Christian, maybe here in this room this morning? It's been said that most people leave churches because of some kind of personal offense, where anger and contempt are allowed to fester until our relationships are broken. The righteousness Jesus wants has to do with the anger in our hearts that may not result in physical murder, but it kills our relationships all the same. Jesus says this anger is liable to judgment. But what human court can judge a person's anger? Our anger can be hidden from others, smoldering inside. No human court can judge this internal reality. And here we see that Jesus is teaching us that there is a judgment that will not just base its judgments merely 
on our external actions, but will search even our hearts and our motives. This, of course, is God's judgment. The prophets spoke of this in many places. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 is one of those places where Jeremiah says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So the righteousness needed to enter heaven goes beyond external deeds and merely outward behavior. It requires a pure heart and mind. That's why Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. So the big idea from this passage this morning is to enter the kingdom of heaven, we need hearts pure of anger and contempt. We've talked about anger. Let's look at contempt a little bit. That Jesus focuses on this twin sin of anger. Notice in verse 22, it says, whoever insults his brother. Now, literally in the original language, this reads, whoever says to his brother, Raka. Maybe some of your translations say that. Raka was a term that was familiar to the people of Jesus' day. It, it means something like blockhead or good for nothing, right? It, it was one of the strongest insults that someone could use in Jesus' day. This along with saying, you fool, were ways of writing people off as useless and looking down on them as of no value and to be rejected. Although not physical murder, it's a way of writing people off as if they don't exist. This kind of despising people made in the image of God, according to Jesus, is as serious as murder. In fact, in fact, speaking of others in this way, Jesus says, puts one in danger of the hell of fire. Now, this is the first of eight times that Jesus refers to hell in the book of Matthew. Hell is a very uncomfortable and even terrifying idea, so much so that many people, including many who identify as Christians, deny its existence. I am personally terrified and, and appalled by the idea of hell. Nonetheless, Jesus affirms its existence. And as the one who is teaching us about the kingdom of heaven and inviting us to be a part of it, he is also honest with us about the alternative. The contrast between heaven and hell could not be clearer in these verses. The righteous of heaven are free from murder, anger, hate, and contempt for their spiritual brothers and sisters. Hell is where those sins will continue and fester forever. <laughs> Even in our own experience of anger and contempt in this life, this is enough to convince us that, uh, of the torment of such a place as hell, which is filled with such unrighteousness. It's not the party that you, your friends are going to be at. You know, that's, sometimes you hear people say that. That's not what hell is. Do you hunger and thirst for the righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven here this morning? See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day did not discuss such things. They did not look beyond the external act of murder to what God wants in the heart. They assured themselves that they were righteous if they didn't murder, but Jesus said that they were full of all unrighteousness inside their hearts. Matthew 23, 27, Jesus criticizes the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, among other things, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I remember when I first studied these verses uh, in my mid-20s, I was in seminary at the time, I was living in Chicago, and I, I had a really bad habit that God convicted me of when I read these verses in particular. I used to drive around and, and frequently, on a regular basis, I would call people idiots. <laughs> and I thought the people, I thought the drivers in Chicago were the worst drivers in the world, you know? I just, um, so I was always calling people idiots. And I, I read these verses and I'm like, I, I was convicted. I'm like, wow, Greg, you gotta stop calling people idiots when you're driving, you know? And, and it was more difficult than I thought it would be. And as I, as I tried to do that, one of the things that God convicted me about was that, that, that there was some kind of anger in my heart just towards people. I had this bitterness of this anger, this like negative view of people. And so I really needed to change my attitude. Thankfully, God's helped me. I'm not an angry driver anymore, as my, my wife and kids can attest. You know, if somebody cuts me off or does something, I just say, well, they must be having a bad day or they're in a hurry or maybe they just made a mistake like I do often when I'm driving, right? Much more gracious attitude. Do you ever refer to people as idiots or some other derogatory term? Are there people that you despise? Usually behind such designations, there is an angry heart. Such anger and contempt is the kind of unrighteousness that has no place in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus wants us to deal with these heart sins and our damaged relationships more than he wants us to appear righteous to others by, before, by performing external acts of righteousness. And that leads us to our next point, which I'm calling application number one. Jesus has taught us the earthly standard, the heavenly standard, and, and now he starts to apply this to some practical areas. And, and the first one is that reconciliation is more important than external acts of worship. We see this in verses 23 to 24. Jesus says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. <clears throat> There's some ambiguity here as to why your brother has something against you. Clearly there is some way that you have wronged him. Have you lashed out in anger or contempt toward him? Or have you sinned against him in some way that he is filled with anger and contempt toward you? It's not exactly clear, but whatever the details, the main point here is that there is a break in the relationship that needs to be reconciled. And here we see the primary concern behind the command not to murder. That is love and peace and harmony between humans. What does God want more than anything else? He wants his children to love one another. And to do this, we need to be able to reconcile with one another. This is way more important and way more difficult than religious activity, like church attendance and membership, singing worship songs, taking communion, all important things. We're going to take communion shortly, but they are, they are external things that we can do while having a sinful heart. In fact, there may be some of you here this morning who should not take communion today because your hearts are filled with anger and contempt towards a brother 
or a sister. This is a vitally important issue that the Apostle Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he instructs the church there about taking communion together. Apparently there were some broken relationships and divisions in the church, and they were still taking communion as if everything was a-okay. Paul warns them in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 31. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. There's no value in participating in religious activities if our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ are not right. And in fact, there are negative consequences to doing so. Notice in these verses that because some of these Christians were taking communion in an unworthy manner, which means they were, their relationships were not right with their brothers and sisters, far from benefiting them, they were weak and sick, and some had even died. They were experiencing God's judgment. God is serious about our relationships in the church and having righteous relationships with one another. There is an, <clears throat> there is an urgency in Jesus' instructions in these verses. Leave your altar, offering at the altar. Leave church. Stop your religious activities. First, be reconciled to your brother. Do the hard work of reconciliation, and then your worship will be acceptable to God. But don't play the hypocrite in external acts of worship. It's interesting that in many churches today, there is an emphasis and an attempt to create a worship experience or a transcendent connection during the worship service. Question of how we improve the worship experience to have that kind of transcendent experience is, is an ongoing question for churches. And in some churches, this is done by making sure that you have professional musicians, installing smoke machines and, and sophisticated light systems, maybe laser lights, and singing the most cutting-edge contemporary music. In other churches like ours, we react against this and intentionally keep the worship simple. Some churches have no music at all. There's an ongoing debate about traditional hymns versus contemporary music. Other churches focus on stained glass and liturgy for a sense of the transcendent. So the problem with all of this is that we're missing Jesus' point. Our worship experience will only improve when we get serious about purifying our hearts and getting right with our brothers and sisters that we are worshiping with. Until that happens, no amount of smoke and lights and Music styles or stained glass or any other external tweak will help us. God does not care about these things. He simply does not want or accept the worship of angry, contemptuous people, whatever form it takes. I think God must grieve over the anger and contempt and division that has arisen in the church over the issue of how we worship. And when we understand Jesus' teachings about the righteousness God wants in our hearts, we will grieve and mourn as well. If you want to experience God when you worship, purify your heart from anger and contempt and reconcile with everyone. Reconciliation is more important 
than external acts of worship. Jesus has a second application here, and I think it's really closely associated with this, the first application, except it seems that he broadens the application from our brothers and sisters to, to everyone in general. Notice verses 25. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. See, it's not only our spiritual family, but all people that we should be reconciled with, even someone who may be an enemy taking us to court. These verses again suggest that we have wronged someone in some way. And we should not think that because we are Christians who have received God's grace, that we can get away with mistreating anyone. Right? If we've wronged someone, whether they're a believer or not, we can't despise them. We can't treat them with contempt. We need to be reconciled to everyone. God's not going to defend us if we've wronged someone and we don't make it right. I think that's the point here. Paul said it best in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. So as we reflect on this passage, I think there's a very important question for us to ask. How do you respond to Jesus and his teaching? And, and this is crucial. And this goes beyond just our passage today to the rest of the sermon and to the rest of Jesus' teachings. And there are two, at least two responses we see in the gospel itself, right? The first re re response is you can reject Jesus, ignore his teaching, and go on thinking you're a pretty good person. You haven't murdered anyone. You don't need to look so closely at your hearts, right? This is the response of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I would say of most people, most religions that believe in human goodness. As we continue in Matthew's gospel, we will see that the religious leaders develop an intense anger and hatred for Jesus that ends in them murdering him on the cross. And at the heart of their hatred was the fact that Jesus had the audacity to call into question their righteousness and say that it wasn't good enough. How dare he? They had convinced themselves and the people that they were the truly righteous. In fact, there was a popular saying at the time of Jesus that if two people went to heaven, one would be a scribe and one would be a Pharisee. They were not going to give up this reputation and humble themselves and admit that they too were just as sinful before God as everyone else. They would kill Jesus before doing that. And so the question for all of us is, who is God? Who determines if I'm a good person, good enough to enter heaven? Who decides? Who sets the standard? Jesus is inviting us to the kingdom of heaven, but he is leaving no doubt as to who is king there. It's him. And if we want to be a part of his kingdom, we will need to live by his standards as to who is good and who is not, about what is right and what is wrong. And of course, that leads us to the second response to Jesus and his teaching, and that is repentance and faith. Right? The message that Jesus started out his ministry with is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
as earthly human beings born into this earthly family, repentance is necessary for us if we are going to enter heaven. And we have to repent, we have to change our ideas that are different from Jesus' ideas. We have to give up our standards that are different than Jesus' standards. And we put our faith in him, accepting him as the king, and accepting his standard for ourselves and for all people. This requires us to humble ourselves because as we begin to understand the righteousness needed to enter heaven, it is clear that as humans, we have all sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. You see, the answer to the question, who is good enough to go to heaven, is no one. Not even one. And this is where the Beatitudes that Jesus began his sermon with become so helpful in guiding us to a right response as he teaches us about kingdom righteousness in these verses. I think the fact that Jesus began this amazing sermon with, blessed are the poor in spirit, is such an important key to all of Jesus' teachings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor means absolute, wretched poverty. It means bankruptcy of spirit. It means destitution of spirit. It's this attitude that Jesus' moral teachings are meant to produce in us. Like the Apostle Paul when he described the struggle and awareness of his own sin in in Romans 7.24, he said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, Jesus is not by his teaching on righteousness, he's not saying, hey, do better. Hey, try harder. He's saying, be honest and admit your wretched state. Blessed are you if you're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Can you see the kind of world God God wants, free from anger and hate and contempt? Do you mourn our current state of our fallen world? and of your own heart and the anger and contempt that you struggle with? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for such a righteousness that Jesus is describing here. Such a world where such a righteousness is present in everyone. Will you settle for merely an external form of righteousness? Or will you ask God to create in you a clean and pure heart? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. You see, as, I, as we meditate on the Beatitudes in relationship to Jesus' teaching on righteousness, their meaning becomes clearer and clearer for us. The Beatitudes describe the kind of person Jesus makes us into as he pours out his spirit on us and transforms us into his image. This is the spirit-filled person who has repented of their sin and believed in Jesus as their king. So as we meditate on these themes from the Sermon on the Mount, it becomes clear that there are at least two things that we desperately need. God's mercy and God's power. No one can honestly understand the righteousness that Jesus is teaching and think that they are good enough to go to heaven. No one is this good. We have all sinned and fall short of God's righteous standard. We need his mercy. We need his forgiveness. And that's why the Bible says Jesus came into the world to save sinners by dying on the cross in our place. We are angry and contemptuous people in danger of the hell of fire. And in his mercy, Jesus goes to the cross to take our punishment that we deserve as our substitute 
as the sacrifice for our sins. The mercy that we need is found in Jesus. And in addition to this, in addition to the mercy that we need, we also need God's power, power to change. And this too is part of Jesus' salvation. We need a new heart that can stop sinning. We can't stop being angry and despising people without this power. In ourselves, we are helpless and powerless to stop sinning and to attain the righteousness that Jesus is is describing for us here. That's why Jesus said we need to be born again. We need a new life. We need regeneration. We need some real power here, the kind of power needed to raise someone dead in sin to new life. And this is the kind of power that God demonstrated when he raised Jesus from the dead, and this is the power that he gives us by his Spirit to raise us up from spiritual deadness in sin to a new and righteous life. Not in our own independent strength, but as we join ourselves to Jesus, we listen and believe in his word, we pray to him, we ask and seek for his righteousness in all of our life, in all of our relationships, he begins to unleash his resurrection power in our lives through the Holy Spirit that he gives to us. And so the mercy and the power are the graces that we need and that we find in the salvation that Jesus brings.